0: So this evening I'd like to speak about the ecology of compassion. The ecology of compassion. Meaning to say the interrelationship of our outer world with our inner world. When we reflect on the ten paramis, and let me say what they are a little bit, Uh, The paramis are those qualities of the heart and mind, those noble qualities of the heart and mind that are forces of goodness. They're inherent within each one of us. They're just kind of waiting to be developed. And uh, they lead us to liberation. They're a foundation for liberation, leading us onward. And a few of those paramis are loving-kindness, Equanimity, generosity, truthfulness, morality, wisdom, resolution, renunciation—you um, can just Google it; <laughs> you'll find it. <laughs> Paramis. <laughs> <coughs> So usually, you know, when we read the ten paramis, people say, where does compassion go in all of that? Compassion isn't one of those ten paramis. So it's actually um, because it's said that it's because of compassion, the Buddhist compassion, that those paramis were developed, that those paramis were pointed out. And it's also said that each one of those paramis are more potentized by compassion. When any one of those paramis has compassion with with it, it becomes more powerful. For example, generosity, which I think is the first parami. When generosity is there and then you, you see someone, you know, who could use some energy or could use a loving touch or an open heart or listening ears and, uh, and maybe some resources. And maybe we feel like holding back a little bit. But because we have compassion, we feel compassion, then our hearts open and we can be generous. So it's sort of a precursor. It also empowers or potentizes each one of those paramis. So paramis uh, and all the, for example, the five precepts that we take in the morning, those are the five, the first ones are the five basic precepts, and then there are three more that have to do more with renunciation. Well, these five precepts were brought about by the Buddha out of compassion, because uh, the Buddha could see that a lot of the problems in our human realm are coming from the, this place of harming and not even knowing that we're going to harm or there's some kind of uh, intention to harm. and in those particular areas, harming by uh, killing other beings, even you know, little beings like insects and Uh, by taking things that aren't given, by using our sexual energy to hurt directly or indirectly, by not telling the truth, by taking uh, ingesting things that will make the mind unclear. And so those things can cause harm when they're not in check. And so it's wonderful that we remind ourselves about these non-harming principles every morning. By taking the precepts, it's said that this particular Buddha from for this world cycle came into the world through because of compassion. He is said to be the great compassionate one. the the They call him the Mahakaruna Buddha, and so in order to give what he gave to the world, it came from so much compassion. There's a story about the Buddha when he sat under the Bodhi tree. At first it said that he didn't have this um, idea to offer the teachings to the world. But uh, in time, in a short time, uh, a being came to him, one of those heavenly beings. It said, you know, and these heavenly beings in, in the Buddhist teachings uh, are written about all the time. And Manindra said, it's okay if you don't believe it, but it's true. <laughs> That's what Manindra would say. Um, so this heavenly being came to the Buddha and said, there are many beings in this world with but little dust in their eyes. And they will come to understand what the teachings are if you can offer them. They will come to some uh, place in their hearts that are freer and freer and then completely free. And so kind of encouraged the Buddha. It didn't take very much to actually offer the teachings. And so out of great compassion, that's what he did. He offered the teachings, these particular teachings that we are receiving uh, today and during these kinds of retreats. Of course, there are many other beautiful teachers and teachings in the world. So, the interrelationship of our inner world, are going on in our heart mind with the outer world, is uh, this meaning of the ecology of compassion. I'm sure that all of you, in your unique ways, in one way or another, have used this relatively quiet place, this um, opportunity to have relative solitude with yourselves, because we're not distracting one another by needing to have conversation or connection in in other ways that we do uh, at other times in our lives. There's stillness and relative non-distraction. And because of this, we can develop a greater and maybe a little bit stronger mindfulness practice, awareness practice, so that we can bring it into the world, into our daily lives. And when we sit here and are with ourselves and we see others around us, Who are with themselves, we really get inspired to just kind of go more deeply. And we get so vulnerable, we get open, we become open to what's really going on inside of ourselves. And then connecting that to going on to connecting with what's going on outside in the world because so similar, suffering is really universal. It happens in unique ways with various conditions, unique conditions uh, for everyone. But this vulnerability is something that is really, it's like the noble truth. I mean, one way to describe that noble truth of there is the truth of suffering is to say in very kind of common terms, everyday terms, There is the truth of vulnerability. We're all born into this vulnerable world as a human being. It's at every level we can see. Alexis spoke of it so beautifully last night in his own way of experiencing it in his own life and just saying in his own words extemporaneously, Every level we see it, situations around us, economically, politically, militarily, agriculturally, each one of those things affecting one another. There is this constant change in affecting and changing and shifting and making into something else, stopping things from happening, making things happen that are beneficial, that are not beneficial. And we have a great deal of feeling of insecurity, of vulnerability, because we're exposed to all of this. And sometimes we can't pinpoint it, but we just know that things are just shifting all over the place. And sometimes people say, you know, they have this feeling of instability, of insecurity, and tears come and... feelings of anxiety come, and you can't pinpoint it. You can't say it's because of my family of origin stuff or because something's happening right in my neighborhood right then. Yeah, that bothers you. But sometimes we're not even thinking about those things in particular, and we know there's a vulnerability that's happening deep within our hearts. The environment, the elements of earth, air, fire, water, endlessly, endlessly interacting with one another. It's so that it, it's like we're on ground that's always shifting. I mean, literally, anyway, on the earth. So we open to that when we sit and we see the vulnerabilities of our bodies, just things that changing all the time. Heat element changing all over, um, turning to coolness and and coldness sometimes, and water element we can feel the shifting of the heaviness in the body. Heaviness represents water element sometimes because it's heavy and you really feel that, and sometimes tears come, sweat comes, you know, blood. Our whole body is made up of seventy percent water or liquid. So we see the effects of aging and the effects of what we eat and how it affects the body, how it affects the mind. There's so much of that change that's taking place all the time. And when you really open to it, it's kind of scary sometimes. There was this... Um, Scientists, I don't know if this is a an urban myth or not, but there's a story of this scientist who knew about, you know, understood deeply about this shifting and like an atom is a, a lot of space more than it is anything, um, you know, solid. And he went around wearing these great big slippers because he was afraid he'd fall through the floor. <laughs> and it was like, that was the reality for him because he was so um, he felt so insecure about the earth he was just walking on the floor he was walking on so there's this great vulnerability I'm just remembering back to a time when it was early on in my practice and I was walking outside doing walking practice on a path similar to one of these it had it was rocky was on Maui little little rocks and I could hear my foot going one at a time in the walking practice walking back and forth and the mind was getting more and more um, clear there was that kind of relative stillness there was not much distracting it, it was just being with the shifting patterns of the mind the body shifting one foot at a time. And it was really, really quiet. And I just happened to look up, and I saw the wind blowing through the leaves of a hypiscus. It was a tree, really. It's really uh, not a tree, but it's a big bush. So it was blowing through that, and it just turned my head and watched those leaves moving. A flower dropped one of the flowers that was hooked on to a branch, it dropped, and I got really, really afraid. I was so scared in that moment. Because it was a first moment that the mind realized that kind of impermanence. It wasn't like the seasons come and go. And it wasn't like, yeah, there's birth and then you know living and death. It was that kind of momentary experience of impermanence, just maybe like that scientist understood it from from that point of view. And uh, I remember running to running to my teacher Manindraji and saying, "I'm really afraid, you know, because everything's moving, and I look at everything in the mind. I've been looking at that; it's always moving." And everything outside is always moving. And nothing, no sensation in the body stays perfectly still. And what's happening? I I don't think I can handle it. And so Manindra just sat back in his chair and he was so happy that I saw (laughs) that. (laughs) Um, But, you know, he really had to kind of be with me to be some stability around me. And so, um, from there, you know, my practice really opened up from, from that place of seeing the vulnerability of life, the impermanence in that way, in that particular level. Now, mind you, you don't have to see it at that level in order to kind of open up your practice. Some people do, but don't go out looking at the leaves of the tree. That might not do it for you. It might be something else, just... You know, for different people, it's different things. And, of course, not to look for anything like that. Because, as usual, the trying to see will obscure what is being seen. Because you're trying too hard. So that, or wanting to see something, that will obscure the mind in that moment. So in the mind, you know, looking at it all the time... um, hopefully, you know, you're not getting so distracted that you're running away from looking at what's going on inside. So you see, it's constantly changing. Can't keep it still. It morphs from one thing to another. In in one moment, it can be elated about something. And the other moment, a mosquito bites you and you're in the hell realms. You know, it's just up and down and flowing like that so this is this is dukkha you know that kind of impermanence when you see that you can't hold on to anything this this is dukkha it's the movement of birth through the living and the aging and the dying process and the dying you know all of that is dukkha being with those we don't like, being separated from those we like, we love, through loss in one way or another. This is suffering. And we're all opening to the vulnerability of that, but at the same time, we're learning this very great strength of awareness. So we're not so lost in what is being seen, but we're more centered in the awareness of it. And so at that moment, when I went to Manindraji and said, this is what's happening and I'm really, it's new and I, it's very hard to take. And at that time, what he directed me to was to simply be more aware, to touch those moments. And he, he tried to get me to be more aware of kind of more tangible things also, like the body, so I wouldn't get so lost in the movement. But it was bringing me to the awareness of how things are and staying with it in a a balanced way, not getting lost in the fear of it. There's a lot more to that, but uh, it wouldn't help to explain that now. so. So to notice all of this is good, is good to do, to notice what's happening. But it's not comfortable. That's why... You know, people come to this practice and they say, you know, I've heard many of you say, this is challenging. This is downright difficult. Mark Twain said, self-knowledge is not always good news. You know, it's like (laughs) we learn about ourselves, right? It's it's why um, Alexis, I think, one of the reasons why maybe he said... I don't want to grow anymore. Like I said that today too. I took that from you, him, because I thought sometimes it's just so hard to grow to know something more about yourself and to be with it and to kind of find balance within that new place that you you never realized before, even if you're sixty-seven years old. So it's not always good news, but you know it's good to know our. One of our uh, colleagues, teachers says, it's better to know than not to know, of course. Because when not knowing is there, delusion is there, ignorance is there. But when knowing is there, there's a possibility for wisdom to arise. Without knowing, which is which awareness brings in, without that knowing, then wisdom can't arise because we're either ignoring it or we're seeing something and overlaying a concept on it that isn't what we're seeing. That's what delusion is. It's seeing but not seeing clearly. And ignorance is ignoring, not even seeing at all. Almost the same but kind of refinely different. So We struggle with those habit patterns that we're beginning to see. But we really, if we want to grow and we want to become more kind to ourselves and others, if we want to have the wisdom to live in this world so that it's onward leading for us as well as other people, then we really have to have the courage to see what's going on inside and to face it. And that's really what compassion is. It's the ability to face all of this difficulty, this vulnerability, this change, or the, you know, the suffering, to be able to face it with an open heart, to be able to lead into it with our hearts, not with our heads, I mean, that helps intellectually, but to be able to lead into it with our hearts and really open to it and be with it on that kind of level, on the level that has the courage. You know, that, that word courage comes from the Latin, which has a base uh, of heart to it. In, in Spanish, it's, it's coraje, and that means courage. Cur, C-O-U-R, is the heart part. So, unless we can do that, um, we'll, we'll really never be able to know ourselves so completely that whatever comes up, we're able to really open to that and face it and transform it somehow. So, <clears throat> what we do a lot is we struggle with it. We, of course, something comes up that's really difficult... And we don't want to see it. There's so many times when some of you have been talking about sleeping. You, you need to sleep sometimes. And it's true. When you first come to retreat, it's like racing around in life and coming here and stopping on a dime. And we need a little rest in, in order to kind of come to some balance to do the practice. But sometimes a lot of sleepiness comes during retreat. And it's really I see a lot in myself and in yogis. It's just like we want to go to sleep. We it's hard to face what's coming up. And usually, when we we just do our best, you know, we might take an extra rest or two. We might have to lay down and do our practice sometimes, but when we can actually wake up enough to see what's going on, something that needed to come out starts to come out of the mind. Something that really we need to see. And in some ways I think that, that kind of sleepiness that gives us the rest helps us to be less feisty about it. You know, we're, we're just more softened up and, and ready to see it. We don't push it away like what we might usually do. We might push something away because it's so hard to see. We can either ignore it, and sometimes that happens through falling asleep, or we can push it away through aversion, or through fear, or through resistance. And all of these habit patterns are part and parcel of who we are. I mean, part of our personality that starts kind of um, exposing itself. So this is the reality of life, what we're facing. We're, we're not facing, oh, it's all beautiful and joyful. I mean, that's good too, and we need to do that. It's a balance to do that in our lives. We can't wipe that out at all, or else we, we just wouldn't be human we also need to do this part to face the reality of how things are and much of our life around us doesn't really support that we're faced with all kinds of distractions all the time Mm. so that's why we need the courage and love that is this compassion when you put courage and love together that, that's compassion. So it's facing reality with a wise and kind heart. Facing reality with a wise and kind heart. Some years ago I had found an old journal. Now, I'm not a person who, who does journaling very much. But... Um, Sometimes I read my journals or whatever I wrote like 10 years ago and I'll I'll think, "No, what the hell does that mean? You know, <laughs> why, why did I write that down? It it kind of has no meaning anymore." So so I stopped doing that because everything's new all the time. It's so changing and <laughs> I want to kind of see what's new in my heart. So I did find this old journal and I found a passage in it where I had written about a quiet desperation and I wrote quiet desperation question mark you know like what, what is this and that, that was that vulnerability that I was feeling that vulnerability about life like what's my purpose and all of those things that kind of you know everyday life vulnerabilities um, what am I supposed to be doing here? And I really wanted to be on a spiritual path, more steadily, more immersed in it, but had three children, and I was raising them on my own at that time. So Manindra came into my life, and he was my first spiritual teacher, and I asked him about that quiet desperation. And he translated it, as spiritual urgency. He, he recognized what is a Pali word for it is samvega. And he recognized that I had that spiritual urgency. And probably in one degree or another, every one of you have that because you're here. You have that samvega, that spiritual urgency, that urgency to know life deeply what really is the meaning of life why why am i here on this earth anyway it's you know not just for the fun and games things that we think we're here for and so i really wanted to understand that in my life so i asked him a question at that time i had written this down what is the meaning of my life the reason for my being alive it has to be more than you know, taking care of these children and being in survival mode and um, making sure there's food on the table and can pay the rent, etc. And his answer was, your reason for being alive is to develop compassion and wisdom. It was so just basically clear to develop compassion and wisdom. And I really didn't know what that meant at that time. You know, and... Knew a little bit, but wisdom, the, the wisdom that the Buddha talked about, the wisdom that can lead to complete liberation, I had no idea. But I had an intuitive sense that this was the path for me. I felt really at home and I felt like um, intuitively comfortable here. And actually, it's been my path for 40 years now. And a little bit, as, as Manindra would say when you would ask him, you know, are you enlightened or are you? And he, he would always say, my path is not yet finished. Like very humbly. He's still working on it, you know? So one of, that answer actually made me feel close to him because he wasn't trying to be so far above. <laughs> And I could really relate to the way he would explain things. So I was able to connect with what's difficult within me um, with a kind of gentleness when I learned more about compassion that I couldn't do it like pushing my way through. And it's what Alexis and I have been um, trying to remind each one of you in groups or individually to just be careful that you have a light touch with it. Because if you push, it's that striving that kind of overlays everything. It's the striving that kind of, you're wearing these glasses of striving and you're seeing through that and you're not going to see very much when you're striving. All you do is you see tightness and tension and wanting to get somewhere and making too much too serious out of something. So it really takes a light touch. Um, My own teacher for a long time, Upandita, still alive, he would frequently ask yogis and myself several times, when I would come in, when he could see that there wasn't, you know, really that pristine kind of clarity just he, they say, and I can attest to it, it's almost like he could see what is going on within you more than you could see yourself mm-hmm. so he would name things sometimes that I didn't even know were present and then when I'd look I'd say, oh yeah that's there so I'd come in and he'd say before I would give my bows, he'd say, uh, a little bit English he knew, what color glasses are you wearing today, Yogi Kamala? Like, you know, maybe my lenses were tinged with pink and I wanted to see everything out of or through rose-colored glasses, or maybe they were whatever, you know, gray and just whatever color they were. Just seeing through those lenses is not going to work. So I could see that over time I was able to be more brave, more courageous about what was going on within me, and um, there was more gentleness. I'm I'm more I am a gentle person. I know that. And I can be a warrior. I, I've been a warrior in practice, and it's gotten me through a lot of places. But mostly, what's when real deep openings came, they came from having a gentle yet very clear heart and mind at that moment. It wasn't about pushing at all. It was sometimes you kind of need the oomph but then you recognize it's just going along by itself and you just have to ride that wave. So that's what we're here in the training together for and um, we're together in this. From what I hear and see in the various communities that I'm connected with and I feel in my own heart, there's a growing sense of urgency in, in our society now. This mindfulness is just kind of like a word that's all over the place now. Just last week I got an email from the um, a top chef whose major major restaurants are in Hawaii and there are many restaurants all over the US and kind of highfalutin restaurants. I I don't frequent those very much, so I can't even remember the name. But he wanted everybody uh, in his restaurants all over to practice mindfulness. And the reason why was because many of you probably were there when I. um, He has some relatives in Seattle, and he wanted to come to a retreat with his wife. His wife and I are in the same exercise class. So I think she dragged him there. So he came to that retreat, and I I really saw him doing the sitting and the walking. That was at Sims in January. And he was doing the sitting and the walking, and he left early. And I thought, oh, you know, too much for him. And then his wife told me in class, she said, First of all, Kamala, when you're in class, I would have never thought that I would see you sitting up in front of a hundred people <laughs> giving those instructions, you know. And she said, it was really hard, kind of like the real high bar for, for us. But he stayed with it. And then, I guess he read more about it, and he realized that all of his employees had to learn that. So it's, it's just really getting around, you know. Um, So luckily there's someone in my community that has taken the MBSR training, the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, and and can go and, and help him out. So there's that urgency to do what we can, to offer our gifts, however insignificant we think they are, to offer what we have to others, and to touch the world. The world is in so much complexity and speed that when we come to a place like this, I mean, don't you have gratitude for having a place like this on the earth? It's just, compared to all the complexity and speed that's going on all over the place, there are very few places like this in the world. And we, we desperately really need more of this that we can come to and really feel who we really are as human beings, and then take that back into the world. We need to touch the world with slowing down, you know, or at least going at a regular pace that we ask you to go out here with simplicity. And um, I know you stay more awake when I tell you stories, so <laughs> I try to throw in stories here and there about practice and. Um, I go to Italy once in a while because I have friends, so they invite me there and I do what I can with their small sangha. And uh, when we go, there's around to places, you know, to eat. And there's a, a McDonald's here and there. You don't see any Italians in those McDonald's. <laughs> it's always. Because they're really into slow eating. Not fast food. So they have this kind of big club called uh, slow food. And that, that's what the Italians are into. And if, um, if I even think, I wouldn't even think of going there, but if I even look at a McDonald's, it's like, you know, really bad when I'm with my Italian friends. No, you can't do that. But just you have to eat at a good pace for the human body. So it's just too fast sometimes. And having a place like this where we can really know the inner landscape is really important. So when we do our Brahma-viharas, Brahma-viharas, remember I told you the other day, are the divine abodes. And they're starting out with loving-kindness and compassion and then uh, sympathetic joy and equanimity. Those are abodes in our hearts that we learn to um, nurture and grow. And when we do the practices of the Brahma-Viharas, what we're doing is we're, we're kind of nurturing those seeds, feeding those, those places in our hearts that have that potentiality to grow and to be useful towards ourselves and towards others. So every time we, we practice like metta and we say a phrase, we may not, um, sometimes we may not go deep into the, the meaning of it or the real feeling of it. But when we're saying the words, at least in some way, we're dropping that into the mind and maybe it'll come out and we'll begin to live in it. We'll begin to live what we've been training ourselves to do. And so these are all important experiences that can come up spontaneously that will help our awareness practice. Metta is goodwill, then the courageous love that we can have for ourselves and others to face dukkha, facing joy without jealousy or comparing mind. Having equanimity that can face all the ups and downs. These are very, very powerful experiences. So it helps us in the purification process because we're able to have, when the mind is more purified, purified of greed, hatred, and delusion, which are the antidotes to greed, hated, hatred, and delusion. Some of them are these various brahma viharas. So, when those aren't so so deeply habitual patterns in the mind, and more supportive qualities come in the mind, it's closer. Brings us closer to that pristine awareness that's able to come up. It's that's able to happen because it's easy for the mind to go there to be just aware. And from awareness, wisdom can come. So we can have this sobering honesty about facing life. This kind of unflinching heart and mind that can open to something and cannot close down. It doesn't have to strike out. It doesn't have to turn away. It can simply face what needs to be faced Sometimes that awareness is uh, accompanied by compassion or by goodwill, by whatever is useful to it, and it makes it even more powerful. In an article um, a few years ago by Agnes Ao, she's uh, from the Bay Area in California, she was writing about uh, Buddhist women, really, And she talks about unlayering the heart, unlayering the mind, exposing what needs to be exposed so that it's not underneath kind of pushing and pulling us to do things that cause suffering. So she said about this path, I see this path is actually an invitation to strip naked at one's own pace and in so doing to experience the vividness of an unfiltered life. The vividness of an unfiltered life. Wouldn't that be wonderful if we could just see what's going on and be with it, not react to it, not react to what's going on in ourselves. And when we learn to do that, we don't have to react as much to what's going on out there. To respond... That means, you know, more with wisdom, yes. But to react with um, aversive tendencies or greedy tendencies, not that. But to be able to respond to life. So I see, and, and all of us on the path sees, it's, it is more vivid. But it's not easy sometimes I think it was Mark Twain who said, meditation is one humiliation after another. Something like that. It's like you see and it's, oh no, you know, but oh yes, it's, it's got to be ready to face it sometimes. So through this process we discover what the habitual forces are. And if we really want to use our lives wisely, We need to do this. What the forces are that make up and keep recreating this inner terrain when they're not in check, greed, hatred, and delusion, they just kind of... It comes up, don't even know it, and it reseeds into the karmic stream. Another seed, and it grows again, and we have to face it again. And this is what samsara is. That cycle of suffering that we keep, have, we keep having to face, this receding of greed, hatred, and delusion in the karmic stream, coming up again, facing it again, either ignoring it or having delusion about it, so it goes back in, or we feed it, so it goes back in, maybe even more strongly, comes up again, because we're not checking the habit patterns of the mind. So how do we get free? The opposite, you know. A, a mental state or emotion comes up that's connected to greed, hatred, and delusion. Awareness comes to see it. Wisdom comes along and sees this is uh, impermanent. It sees that it's impersonal, or it sees that it's dukkha. You know, it's it's going to cause suffering. And so with that wisdom, because of awareness, that doesn't get any energy so or it gets little energy so it goes into the karmic stream very weakly and then it maybe doesn't come up as strong or in some instances when the practice is really really powerful it gets totally uprooted so that's another story but these can get totally uprooted by wisdom being brought to the forefront with awareness. Because then there's no reactivity to what's coming up, either inside or outside. And that's the purification process that we're in. That's how we become better human beings, where we're happier, we're more peaceful in life. We spread that around just because we model it. And in time, you know, the purification process can't go backwards anymore. It keeps going on its own. It becomes very uh, spontaneously um, purifying and um, one becomes freer and freer. So it creates more harmony on the individual level within, between individuals, more happiness, more peace. And I'm not speaking from a book I see this happen in my own life and I see it happen in other people's lives so it's not theoretical for me I'm not a fully developed human being but I I really know that um, this path can lead the heart and mind there so we're inclining the mind towards nourishing that. But it, that kind of wisdom, and through compassion, we can open to that kind of wisdom, even when it's hard to open to. As the Buddha said, what a person reflects upon over and over again, to that his or her mind will incline. To that their minds will incline naturally. So what we practice when we practice awareness it inclines there naturally, and in this case, I'm talking about compassion. When we incline it towards compassion, it inclines there naturally. And just a story about my own experience with metta. I was doing metta practice for the first time. I was doing it in a in a long retreat, so I was only doing metta for two months. That only doing metta, sitting and walking and eating and going to the bathroom. And I was, the training was to do it all the time. It wasn't just sitting, it was every moment. And so I did that every day for 60 days and only with the benefactor. And so that, it was really a kind of, It was very, so that the mind could get really concentrated and still. And a lot of beautiful experiences came up. And inclining the mind towards metta all the time, inclining towards metta, and at first I was really not happy that I had to repeat those words all the time. But in time, you know, it wasn't just words. The experiences of metta came and The words would come by themselves, but sometimes they didn't come. But the experience of metta in a very concentrated state would come. The most important experience from that came in this way. I went home. And, you know, at that time I had four children and I was raising them. And... um, it's very difficult, of course. Many of you are parents and know. And I worried a lot. I was really a, a worrywart. I still am a bit, you know, but that time, I just worried about everything. The moment I woke up, I would worry. Like, what, what, what am I going to do today to make sure that we survive? <laughs> and um, when I got home from that meta retreat, And the mind was very cooled out. And when I woke up in the morning, one of the first mornings I woke up and I realized that I woke up with no worry. And the first things that came out of my mind, hearing the birds sing outside, the first thing that came out was wishing the birds well. And that was a huge thing for me. A huge thing for the mind to take up the metta and to kind of, the, the worry was way to the side. It still comes up. But metta is a very strong inclination for, for the mind. So those habitual forces um, that create an ecology of unrest and distress and disharmony on the inside level and the outside level, there's a possibility for that to change. And you can't do it by changing the world. Of course, we it's a really trite saying, you got to change it in here. And then it happens out there. So of course, as hard as it is to see this unrest and distress and ways of ill will that we have within our own hearts, seeing it, Seeing this suffering has its advantages, its blessing, um, because it's said that the proximate cause for compassion to arise is suffering. <laughs> for, yeah, the proximate cause is suffering. When we see suffering, there is that propensity for compassion to arise with it. So, opening to it can bring about these blessings if we learn to incline the mind there and sometimes we have to say the words to live into them. His Holiness the Dalai Lama says until you understand the meaning of suffering there will still be a measure of hypocrisy to your compassion. It's like, oh yeah, you know, poor things or something like that. There's, it's not really that deep because we haven't seen it our, in ourselves into that degree. So without this ability to face and to open and touch the suffering within our own hearts, in our own landscape, inside, we don't really have the power to change it out there. So just the Dalai Lama's doing his work. You know, if you've watched videos or read about how much he does, his practice. And he does a lot of work in the world, of course. It's amazing how much he can keep up with all of the things he's he's asked to do, places that he's asked to meet thousands of people at a time. Wakes up really early to do his work and all the other things he has to do. And just when he speaks... He has he incites that compassion in a lot of people just in his speaking and um, he speaks about compassion a lot, of course, but just in his everyday language he's you know you can just feel it it's coming out of his pores I had the um it was just kind of like serendipitous that I got to go to Here is Holiness in 1989 when he won the Nobel Peace Prize. So it was in California, and I just finished a retreat. And um, he was, I just finished sitting a retreat for uh, three months, and he was there. And um, he was saying, you know, all these beautiful Tibetan chants, which I didn't understand, but I just loved being in his presence. So he was just sitting there, and and um, I know I'm I'm just doing this kind of tune, but you know I would hear it as and I would just feel the vibration of his care and his love for everyone. <coughs> you know, don't understand a word. It's like what Alexis was talking about. If people spoke in Mongo- Mongolian, you know it. It's kind of nice not to just understand the words, but just to feel the vibration. And in the middle of that, he just got a sense, you know, he saw people kind of getting up, going to the bathroom. He stopped that really sacred chant he was chanting, and he said, Bathroom? Bathroom? <laughs> <laughs> And there were like 6,000 people there. And he said, bathroom? And he said, oh, he said, yes, take a break, take a break, go to the bathroom. And he just stopped what he was doing. And it was like, he's really, I just thought right then, he's really connected. You know, it's not just like all these spiritual things. He's, it, he's just really connected to being human. There's, there's a lot of stories like that about him. So, you know, granted that our practice, in our practice we may not radically change the world, but what we're doing is we're transforming our own hearts. And that's going to send a ripple out. Just, just by the little acts of compassion that we do in the world, it's going to send a ripple out. You probably know the ripples that have come to you from some little thing, or vice versa. Something that you've done that then you see out in the world making a ripple. You know, I never thought I would have any kind of influence over that person who came to my retreat at Sims <laughs> over the New Year, um, the New Year's Sims uh, weekend retreat. But you know, now he wants to teach have them taught mindfulness meditation, all of his employees. So, as His Holiness says, compassion doesn't make the atrocities of the world disappear or see them as right, but it does stop them happening in our own hearts. So we feel connected to people, in, in a very very simple ways where they really feel our love, they really feel our care. Even when they're going through something difficult and even when their difficulty sort of includes us or affects us. In one of the highest callings for me is to feel hurt by some an action or by something that somebody did so close to me and to still see their suffering. And to still see that, you know, it probably came from some suffering. And I'm part of it, okay. But I can still feel love and compassion for that person, no matter what happened. It's other things I feel too, but, you know, that's kind of not as, not as strong. Not as strong. So it manifests as a spontaneous offering, um, in, instead of as a withdrawal. It's sort of like you can't withdraw. You you just got to be there. If you can. I love the green Tara, in the Tibetan, um, in the Tibetan lineage. You know, it's like the green Tara is the the Tara. It's it's a figure of um, it's it's really. It looks like a woman, but it's really kind of neutral in a way. Am I right? Okay. So um, she has, she's seated like this in this position, but her right foot is like just ready to take a step, just ready to help. And she's just, whatever there is, whatever suffering there is, she's ready to help. And that may not be like it's, like it's us all the time like sometimes we hold back because maybe it's dangerous of course and maybe we hold back because we're not sure we're doing the right thing Uh, but when we can feel that impulse in the heart and it's said that compassion is the quivering of the heart and it's the quivering to do something to help out it could be a little thing it could be just this like to be with somebody who's in pain and just be with them. So it's allowing us to reach beyond aversion, to reach beyond what attachment, how we think it should be. Now is really touched by what happened in, in um, South Carolina in Charleston. Um, some of you were in retreat, and it was, um, it's over now, and, and things have, you know, settled down, but it's where somebody went into a church and and shot people in, in the church, in a in kind of Bible study group. And it really shook us all up. And, um, The president came on and gave a beautiful speech about that just before I came here. And really, he talked about loving kindness and metta. And he said, uh, he quoted someone, I I, I don't have the quote, but he quoted a a poet, I think she's an African-American poet, who said something like, if we could just touch that place in our hearts that shows a little kindness and offer it to the world, even just a little bit. And, uh, you know, the the perpetrator of that act was, of course, a really confused person. And um, young, very young person, very confused. And one of the first things I saw on, on the Internet was close relatives of those who were killed and they asked them what what what's going on in your hearts, and they said, "I forgive that person." That was a like in the forefront of their minds was forgiving that person. There was about were there three about three of them. They were related, and and I think um, it's either their coach or their mother or something had had died, and their first. Feeling and act was compassion. Forgiveness is that kind of compassion, you know, for even for the perpetrators of violence. So, and you know, these were from that church. These were those church people who learned so much compassion. It was an African American church, and learned they learned to incline their minds there. You know, they probably did a lot of forgiveness in their prayers. And so when something that violent came up, that's where their minds inclined. They, they probably have other things, sadness, anger. They're human. Other things will come up, most probably. But that, that really, really was powerful. It was really powerful. And it's really, compassion is a grace. It's really, it's when grace comes upon us and you can't, well, it comes from, it'll come naturally when we train to go there and it'll come up naturally. But a lot of us can have that compassion just by seeing suffering and just allowing ourselves to open to it. Because when we can open to it, there's really, there's something about opening to suffering that polishes those places within us that makes us like jewels of shining on this earth and um, spreading the light of that beauty around us there's a wonderful poet, uh, Mark Nepo have any of you heard of him? he went through, yeah, a lot of cancer and um, he, he was, he really, <laughs> that pearl really came out of him through all the difficulty he went through and just having courage to bring to what he was going through during his um, ordeal with cancer. I don't know, maybe he still has it. So he said this in, in one of his writings having loved enough and lost enough. I'm no longer searching, just opening, no longer trying to make sense of pain, but being a soft and sturdy home in which real things can land, these are the irritations that rub to a pearl, in which real things can land, real life, you know, landing in our hearts because we're open and let them come in. Of course there's sometimes we have to find our balance and we have to, you know, make some boundaries and not now. All of that we need to do, but sometimes we can really stay open and be with it as it is. So when we see Things that are terrible, that are hard to be with outside of us or inside of us, we can make a greater connection with those things outside of us if we can open to what's inside of us. There can be a deeper connection with that, a deep, uh, more courage to open to all of life and not treat it with disdain because of one reason or another or ignorance. Or make it something into. Make it into something it isn't. Delusion. I'm really believing in in this um, a lot. I've been reading a lot of Rilke. Um, And I'd like to end with this poem. It's really about compassion and suffering. He says, perhaps everything terrible in its deepest being is something that needs our love. Something that needs our love. That's compassion. Inside us, outside us, can we bring forth that love? So let's sit for a moment.